Well, good evening to each one of you, and it's great to see all of you here again tonight. And I've been looking forward all day to the message for this evening, because the message for this evening is so important, probably, in my estimation, the most important message of the entire series. So I'm glad that you are here, and I believe that the Lord has a special blessing in store for us tonight. So before we get into our message, I'm going to kneel and pray. You may remain seated and we'll get into our message. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for bringing us again to the meeting tonight. We thank you for how your spirit has been with us this week. And Lord, I just pray especially tonight as we talk about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf that you would give me just the words to speak that will bring encouragement to perhaps someone who is downcast, someone who is looking for hope, who needs help, and that it will encourage all of us to keep our eyes on Jesus every step of the way. This is my prayer in the lovely name of Jesus. Amen. So the title for the message this evening is Jesus, the Ultimate Sacrifice. You know, the theme of our series has been a living sacrifice, and we started off on Sabbath talking about high time to wake up and the parable of the ten virgins and how God wants us to be awake at this time of earth's history. Then we talked about the Laodicean message and some of the roadblocks that have prevented us from being awake. And then we got into the message of Abraham and how his life was the essence of the three angels' messages, how he was willing to offer his son Isaac on the altar of sacrifice. Then last night we looked at the Elijah experience and how Elijah lived a sacrificing life, not afraid to give a message of warning and reproof, but also he gave a message of hope, offering the balm of Gilead to those who needed that source of strength and encouragement. And, you know, if we had more time, we would talk about other Bible characters, Moses, Daniel, there's plenty of others from the Old Testament that we could talk about. But based on the course of this week, we're going to skip ahead several hundred years and we're going to come to the New Testament, and we're going to look at the life of Jesus Christ, his life and his sacrifice. And I want to start off with a quote from The Desire of Ages, which, by the way, if you have not read The Desire of Ages, if you want to fall in love with Jesus more than ever, that's the book to read. And Desire of Ages, page 83 we read, it would be well for us to spend a thoughtful hour each day in contemplation of the life of Christ. We should take it point by point and let the imagination grasp each scene, especially the closing ones, as we thus dwell upon his great sacrifice for us, our confidence in him will be more constant, our love will be quickened, and we shall be more deeply imbued with his spirit. If we would be saved at last, we must learn the, lessons of, the lesson of penitence and humiliation at the foot of the cross. And that to me is a very powerful statement. So we would do well to spend a thoughtful hour each day thinking about the life of Christ, especially the closing scenes. And if you look at the series for, for this week, we're talking about the sacrifice of Christ tonight, but on Sabbath morning, we're going to be talking about the cross of Christ again. And I make no apologies for that. To talk about the cross of Christ, you can't ever exhaust that topic. And so we would do well to spend a thoughtful hour each day and so having two out of nine sermons talking about the cross of Christ in a series on revival, that's where it all, it all is. So we've been talking about the cross of Christ a little bit here and there, but we're really going to focus in on the sacrifice of Christ. And then the last paragraph of this chapter, the next 
paragraph after I just read. It says, as we associate together, we may be a blessing to one another. If we are Christ's, our sweetest thoughts will be of him. We shall love to talk of him. And as we speak to one another of his love, our hearts will be softened by divine influences. Beholding the beauty of his character, we shall be changed into the same image from glory to glory. And so I would submit to you this evening as we start this message, the life the death and the character of Jesus Christ. We should be thinking of him as the day goes by. Our sweetest thoughts should be of Jesus Christ, of his sacrifice on our behalf, how he has made it possible for us to have a way of salvation provided. And so as we go through this message, I hope and pray that it will reawaken within our hearts a deep appreciation for what Jesus has done for us. Now I want to turn to Scripture, starting in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. This is a good Christmas verse, but it's talking about the Messiah. We've entered into the Christmas season. Here in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, For unto us a child is born, Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. You know, when we look at Jesus... He came to this earth. He was born as a child. And we see the descriptions of his name. He shall be called Wonderful. Is Jesus wonderful to you? Is he counselor to you? Is he the one that you go to take counsel with when the trials of life come? Is he your mighty God? He is the mighty God. Is he the mighty God of your life? The everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. What a God. That the God of the universe would condescend to become a child here on this earth. And when we think of Jesus as the ultimate sacrifice, yes, we think about his sacrifice on the cross. But that's not where the sacrifice began for Jesus. You realize that, right? Jesus was king of kings, lord of the universe. The angels worshipped him. He had the love of the Father right next to him throughout eternity. And then one little speck on the, the dot of the universe, he comes here as a human being to save us. What a sacrifice. What a condescension to leave a perfect, comfortable, loving home that he had known throughout eternity to come and save a lost and dying world. What a sacrifice. And when we read Romans 12, 1 and 2, where Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, we as God's people have nothing to complain about when God says, offer your body as a living sacrifice. Surrender your life to me as you follow me because Jesus left everything to come to this earth to save us. In fact, Ellen White makes it very clear. This is Desire of Ages, pages 48 and 49. This is the last paragraph of page 48 going into page 49. The story of Bethlehem is an exhaustless theme. In it is hidden the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. We marvel at the Savior's sacrifice in exchanging the throne of heaven for the manger and the companionship of adoring angels for the beasts of the stall. And you realize when Jesus was born here on this earth, he wasn't born in a mansion. He wasn't born in the best hospital, so to speak, that the world had to offer. He wasn't attended by the best medical staff. And he, there wasn't 
widespread media coverage of the birth of Jesus Christ. He was born in a lowly manger where the animals that he had created were watching his birth. Human pride and self-sufficiency stand rebuked in his presence. Yet this was but the beginning of his wonderful condescension. So the first thing we see, the first sacrifice that we see that Christ made was to leave heaven and to come to earth. But not only did he come to earth, when he came to this earth, he became a human being. So he's God and now he becomes man. That's another infinite sacrifice for Christ to make. Notice, she continues, it would have been an almost infinite humiliation for the Son of God to take man's nature even when Adam stood in his innocence in Eden, but Jesus accepted humanity when the race had been weakened by 4,000 years of sin. Like every child of Adam, he accepted the results of the working of the great law of heredity. What these results were is shown in the history of his earthly ancestors. He came with such, an, uh, with such a heredity to share our sorrows and temptations and to give us the example of a sinless life you know Jesus didn't have to do that he could have stayed up in heaven but he came down to this earth not only did he come down to this earth but he came he became a human being a human being that was affected by the great law of heredity after 4,000 years of sin and he shared our sorrows and temptations so not only is Jesus leaving a perfect environment but he's coming to earth where he is subjected to the same sorrows and the same temptations that we have here on this earth. Which is why Hebrews 4 verses 15 and 16 says that he was tempted in all points like as we are, which qualifies him to be our savior and our high priest. Jesus not only came to this earth, but rather than being God on earth alone, he was God and man. Now, if he had been God alone, without taking our humanity, he could have just walked around and he could have been like, oh, yeah, you know, you, oh, this is awful. Can't wait to get back to heaven. But as a human being, he made a conscious choice to participate in this life and to show us what heaven on earth can be like. He brought heaven with him to this earth, but he chose by a life of sacrifice to share our sorrows and our temptations. So if you feel sometimes that your life is going through such a difficult time of sorrow and temptation and trial, realize that in the 33 and a half years that Jesus lived on this earth, he shared in those sorrows and temptations. And continuing on, Page 49 of Desire of Ages. Satan in heaven had hated Christ for his position in the courts of God. He hated him the more when he himself was dethroned. He hated him who pledged himself to redeem a race of sinners. Aren't you glad that Jesus pledged to redeem us? Yet into the world where Satan claimed dominion, God permitted his son to come, a helpless babe, subject to the weakness of humanity. He permitted him to meet life's peril in common with every human soul, to fight the battle as every child of humanity must fight it, at the risk of failure and eternal loss. Do you realize that God risked everything by sending Jesus to this earth? This wasn't just some kind of a, well, let's put on a charade here and we'll show them what it's like. I'll have a play. I'll, have, I'll memorize the lines and I'll act them out when I come here to this earth. No, when Jesus came to this earth, he was really a human and eternal failure and loss was on the table. That was a risk that God made when he sent Jesus to this earth. And then the last paragraph is such an amazing statement. The heart of the human father yearns over his son. He looks into the face of his little child and trembles at the thought of life's peril. You know, every parent here can identify with that statement. He longs to shield his dear one from Satan's power, to hold him back from temptation and conflict. To meet a bitterer conflict and a more fearful risk, God gave his only begotten son that the path of light might be made sure for our little ones. Here in his love, wonder, O heavens, and be astonished, O earth. 
Have we grown complacent in our knowledge of what God has done by sending Jesus to this earth to make a way of salvation possible for each one of us? We should be astonished. Are we astonished by the sacrifice that God has made in sending Jesus to this earth as a human being to live out a life as an example and to make a sacrifice to die for our sins on the cross? And because of that sacrifice, when we look into the face of our little ones, our children, we can know that because God risked the life of his son in sending him here to this earth and had the same care and the same concern over his son while he was here on this earth, we can have confidence that we can put trust in our Heavenly Father to deliver our little ones here as well. What a God, what a Savior to come to this earth. And so the sacrifice of Christ, he left heaven, he left the adoration of angels and the association and comfort of being with his Father. He took man's nature, he came to this earth. And while he lived on this earth, he had to relate to human beings who didn't appreciate the sacrifice he was making. Have you ever done everything you could? You made conscious decisions to make sacrifices. Maybe it was for your children or for your family or whatever it may be. You did everything you could to do the right thing and then the people around you don't appreciate what you've done. I think we've all experienced that. And you know what human nature's response to that is? Well, fine. See if I ever do that for you again. Now listen, and trust me, I felt that way. I mean, for me to say it in the way I just said it shows that I felt that way before. But you know, Jesus, he created every human being that he interacted with while he was here on this earth. And if anybody had the right to say, fine, if that's the way you're going to be, see if I ever try to save you again, Jesus had that right. As he was surrounded by sinners day after day, year after year, for 33 and a half years, his half-brothers didn't understand his mission. There was a time where his mother even came with his brothers and said, Jesus, come out and talk to us, because they were concerned about the decisions he was making in his ministry. And Jesus had to say, my mother and my brothers are those who do the will of God. And he wouldn't go out and talk to his own mother and brothers. He wasn't even understood at times by his own family. And he had to be around disciples for three and a half years who he was teaching day after day after day. And as he comes up to the time that he's going to be put on the cross, they're still arguing about who's going to be the greatest. And you have to wonder at this point, the devil has to be saying in Jesus' mind, you've worked with them for three and a half years and look at how pathetic they still are. And of course, Jesus had come to give the Jewish nation one last chance, and he's surrounded by leaders who are looking to try to kill him at every step of the way. And even John the Baptist, the forerunner who had prepared the way for his coming, sends his disciples shortly before he dies to ask Jesus, Jesus, are you really the Messiah or should we look for someone else? This is the same John the Baptist who had baptized Jesus and had seen the dove descend and potentially could have heard the voice, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And now he's asking Jesus, are you really the Messiah? Jesus was surrounded by doubt. Jesus was, under, was surrounded by those who didn't understand his mission. Jesus was, was surrounded constantly by people who were out to get him. Yet day after day, year after year, he gave us an example of how to live in the midst of conflict, trial, and sorrow. In fact, when you look at Jesus' beginning of ministry. 30 years he had lived at home. He had done his faithful work as a carpenter. Then he comes to John the Baptist. He is baptized. And then we read in Scripture that, that he is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And we're going to look 
at these three temptations briefly, starting in Matthew chapter 4, verses 4 through 10. And I think we all know this story, but it's good to remind ourselves of what exactly Jesus went through. Let's start in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. So, you know, Jesus hadn't, to be, hadn't had to be around the devil for at least 4,000 years directly. And now here he is subjecting himself to the direct attacks of his arch enemy in the great controversy. And if it's, you know, our natural tendency as human beings, at least, is to stay away from those who annoy us or bother us. And yet Jesus puts himself right in the center of the controversy to be attacked and afflicted by his arch enemy because he loves us so much. Verse 2, And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he was afterward and hungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. If you be the Son of God. And Ellen White tells us in The Desire of Ages that Satan came as an angel of light and Jesus after 40 days is emaciated and looks frail and to all human appearances the angel of light must be a divine being and what's going on with this person here who looks all emaciated and hungered? And so Satan, to all appearances, to the senses, Jesus is exhausted. He is hungry. He is tired. He is wanting to eat food. And he's wondering what's the next step in the plan. And then a, a being with divine appearing light comes and speaks in a wonderful loving tone and says, if you be the son of God, turn these stones into bread. Hey, if you're the God of the universe, you shouldn't be like this. Jesus, what are you doing? Why are you allowing yourself to look so awful, to be so hungry? You're better than this. You're the God of the universe. Prove to me now that you're God, just so that I'll know for sure that because you look so bad, you know, I just need to be sure that you really are God. Turn these stones into bread. And listen, when you're hungry and when you're tired, is your natural disposition to be more cheerful or to be more grumpy? Is your natural disposition to be more impulsive or to show restraint? I think you know the answer to the question, which is why we follow the laws of health. We try to get plenty of rest. We want to eat a healthful diet and to get plenty of exercise. But Jesus wanted to show us that no matter what situation you are in, physically speaking, through his grace and through his power, he can help you through any situation of hunger, any situation of weariness, any situation where you feel like you've gone far enough. And notice Jesus' answer in verse 4. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. There's the answer. The devil says, Are you really the Son of God? And Jesus' response is from Scripture, and it's a relevant passage of Scripture. And we as God's people need to learn to respond to temptations and to the attacks of the devil in such a manner. Sometimes we'll have a response from Scripture, but it's not relevant to the temptation. And sometimes we don't know what the relevant passage of Scripture is, but Jesus knew just which passage of Scripture to meet the devil with. Even after 40 days of fasting. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And by the way, Ellen White tells us in the Great Controversy that the time of trouble that lies ahead of us, we will need to learn to, to pass through or to be able to go through experiences of weariness, hunger, and delay. And so Jesus gives us that example. Then the next temptation, verse 5 then the devil taketh him up into the holy city and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Now notice, Jesus quotes scripture to Satan to meet off the first temptation. So the second temptation, Satan says, Well, I'll just come back and show scripture to you. Okay, if you want to use scripture, let's talk scripture. 
And you know the devil does that today? He'll quote part of a passage of scripture and you'll think that you're getting the whole story when in reality you're often just getting half the picture or you're getting a passage taken entirely out of its context. I mean, did God write that passage in the book of Psalms? He shall give his angels charge over thee, lest thou dash thy foot of stone so that we could all go jump off buildings and angels could catch us. And yet sometimes we try to use scripture to justify such foolish type of behavior. And Jesus' response is simple. It is written again. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Don't be presumptuous. Don't presume upon the laws of safety or health or whatever just because the Bible says that my God shall supply all my needs. Well, if my God shall supply all my needs, then I'm just going to go out and gamble all my money away and he'll supply it again when I get back home. No, that's not what the Bible means. And then the third temptation, again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them and saith unto him, all these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. And then we see the devil left him for a season. In these three temptations, three specific areas are addressed. And in Desire of Ages, page 116, we are told that it was in the area of appetite, love of display that leads to presumption, and love of the world. And those are the three areas, and specifically in the love of the world, 1 John 2.15 calls it the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So appetite, love of the world, love of display, which leads to presumption, those are the three main categories which humanity is tempted with. And Jesus showed each one of us that even after 40 days of fasting, if you hold on to the word of God, you can be faithful in every area of temptation in your life. And 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, There is no temptation that has taken you, but such as is common to man, that God will, with the temptation, make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. It's not just Jesus that could escape temptation. We can too. And so Jesus, he makes the sacrifice of leaving heaven, taking man's nature, and then having to face the devil head on when it would have been so much easier to stay away from these direct temptations. And with respect to the leaders of Israel and the disciples, notice what Jesus says to the Pharisees and the leaders of Israel in Matthew chapter 23, starting in verse 23. Matthew 23, starting in verse 23. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithes of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done, and not to leave the others undone. Ye blind guides, which strain at a net and swallow a camel. Woe unto you, scribes and hypocrites, Pharisees, for ye may clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. So Jesus was surrounded by leaders in the church at that time who made a good showing on the outside, but the, on the inside they were all dirty. And yet Jesus, who was pure from within and without, tried to reach these leaders, yet at every step of the way they were opposing him. They were setting roadblocks up. They were trying to kill him. And finally Jesus had to say, you're hypocrites. You're making a good show on the outside, but on the inside your heart is unclean. And for each one of us here, we need to ask ourselves the question, are we like the Pharisees? Are we like hypocrites who we make a good show on the outside, but on the inside we're all dirty? We need to be living sacrifices, transformed by the renewing of our mind. And so Jesus was constantly surrounded by evil. And as I said earlier, he's around his disciples who up until the very end are arguing who was the greatest. And finally, Jesus made a breakthrough when he washed the disciples' feet. Again, the, hu the humility of Christ, the sacrificing spirit of Christ. They hear his disciples are arguing about who is going to be the greatest, and Jesus humbly and quietly shows, if you want to be great, be humble like me. 
My kingdom's not of this world. We don't fight for position and power and authority. That's what the people of the world do. That's what Barack Obama and Mitt Romney were fighting over just a few weeks ago. Who's going to be the greatest? Let's get people to vote for us. That's not how the kingdom of Jesus works. And that's not how the church of God is supposed to operate. We are supposed to operate where we follow the spirit of Christ, where we're not striving to be the greatest. Those who are great are those who are humble, those who serve. And so, finally, after three and a half years, after Jesus washes his disciples' feet, the time finally comes for him to enter into the Garden of Gethsemane. And just before he enters into the Garden of Gethsemane, he actually offers one of the most beautiful prayers in all of Scripture in John chapter 17. And I'm not going to go through the entire prayer. But this is the night before Jesus died. John chapter 17, verse 1. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. And you know, when Jesus is saying, The hour has come, glorify thy Son, he is speaking of being lifted up on the cross, dying a humiliating death. This would be the hour of Christ's glory. It wasn't going to be him being a bright, shining, heavenly being that would scare all of the wicked people of this world. That wasn't what being glorified was all about. It was to be lifted up on the cross. And in fact, I don't have the statement with me, but Ellen White says that hanging on the cross, Christ was the gospel. And Jesus says, glorify thy son, that thy son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Verse 4, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And then Jesus goes on to pray specifically for the unity of his believers. As Jesus is facing his death, what is on his mind is that his believers, his followers, would be united the way he is united with the Father. And listen, if we're going to be united with each other and with God the way Jesus is united with the Father, we must have the same spirit of humility that Jesus had the night before he died. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. But you know, after Jesus prays this prayer, it didn't stay all nice and warm and, oh, let's be united. He actually went through some intense agony. And let's, we're going to spend some significant time, because remember the quote from Desire of Ages, page 83, we would do well to spend a thoughtful hour each day and to spend time, especially on the closing scenes. And, and when you look at the closing scenes of Christ's life, yes, when he washed the disciples' feet, that would be part of it. But especially when he comes to Gethsemane, this is where we see the Savior of the world in all of his glory. And let's look at Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 38. Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 38. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. Here is Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, the creator of the universe. And in his humanity, he says, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Jesus had a wave of agony hit him as he realized he was going to bear the sins of the world. And in his humanity, he could not see past the cross. 
Yes, he knew that the father said he would get through. But as he came to that moment face to face, and as he realized that he would face a time of separation from the father, an intense agony began to hit him. And he needed at that time the prayers and the encouragement of his disciples, the ones who wanted to be the greatest. And they couldn't even stay awake. Verse 39, and he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. In his humanity, Jesus is saying, Father, I don't want to go through this experience on the cross. I don't want to be separated from you. I don't want to bear the sins of the world. I don't want to experience the second death. If it's up to me and my humanity, I will not go through this experience, but I am not going to follow my own inclinations. I will do your will. Give me the strength. Is that how we pray to the Lord? Do we pray to the Lord, Lord, you know, this trial is very difficult for me, but if this is your will for my life, I will go through it. Or do we say, God, make the trial stop, please, now. But have we asked, is this God's will for our life, or are we just consulting our own will? And yet Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he is saying, in his humanity, I don't want to go through this. But Father, because I love you and I trust you, if this is your will, I will go through it. And that's not the first time and only time he prayed that. I mean, that was the first time, but it wasn't the only time he prayed that. Verse 40, And he came, cometh unto the disciples, and findeth them asleep, and saith unto Peter, What, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Here Jesus is facing the struggle of the great controversy, if you will. The human race's destiny is on the line, and the disciples, not realizing the gravity of the moment, fall asleep. And listen, as we talked about in our sermon on Sabbath, Jesus is about to come back, and Scripture is saying, it is high time to wake up. Why is it that at some of the most important times in the history of the church, in the history of God's believers, we find God's people asleep? And here you have the three disciples closest to Jesus. They are sleeping. And in the parable of the virgins, God's pure church, as they're waiting for Jesus to come, they are sleeping. And scripture says it's high time to wake up. And if any time that these disciples should have been awake, it should have been now. And you know, this isn't the first time this happened to them. When Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration and Moses and Elijah came down, they fell asleep and missed out on the complete blessing they could have gained from that experience as well. And then continuing, verse 42, he went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O oh my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. And if you go over to the book of Luke in chapter 22, verses 41 through 45, that is where we see that Jesus was in such intense agony that he sweat drops of blood. And as a physician, I can say you can be in such a physiological state of anguish that you can have rupture of blood vessels of capillaries and it can cause you to sweat blood if you were in such a state of agony and distress. And Jesus, humanly speaking, he had a human body. He had human nature. We saw that earlier in the message. He was in such a state of agony and distress that he started sweating drops of blood. This shows you that this was not an enjoyable experience for Jesus to pass through. Jesus wasn't passing through Gethsemane saying, okay, we're almost done. This is great. I'm so glad. I mean, we're just going to get through this and it's all going to be fine. No, Jesus knows what it's like to come face to face with a trial and to say, I don't want to go through this. This is awful. And finally, 
verse 44, after he found a disciple sleeping again, verse 44, he says, it says, he left them again and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. And notice the, the same words are, oh, my father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. Now notice, in the first time, verse 39, Jesus says, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But by the end, he says, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. So he's in, in submission now to the will of the Father. He's coming to accept that, the fa Father, I see that this is your will. I've prayed the prayer. I've told you that humanly I don't want to do it. But if this is your will, I will drink it. Now, I want to read to you a profound statement from the desire of ages about what led Jesus to come to the final decision of drinking the cup. And before I even read that, let me say this. As Jesus is praying the prayer, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, the devil is there right by his side saying, Jesus, it's not worth it. You've been here working with your disciples for three and a half years, and the men that are closest to you, they're sound asleep. Why would you sacrifice everything? Why would you risk everything? Why would you choose to separate yourself from your father when you feel like there may not be a point of return? Because here you've been 33 and a half years. In the last three and a half years, you've given in your entire life to ministry to raise up disciples to carry forward your work, and they're not even ready for this moment. Why are you going to even bother Jesus? Go back to heaven where they love you. And you don't think that didn't weigh on Jesus' mind as he comes back and he sees the disciples sleeping? But notice what happens in page 690 of Desire of Ages. The humanity of the Son of God trembled in that trying hour. He prayed not now for his disciples that their faith might not fail, but for his own tempted, agonized soul. Jesus came to a point where the only person that he could be concerned about was himself. As dearly as he loved his disciples, as dearly as he loved all of humanity, at this moment he knew that he must be at a moment where he is right with the Father. And you realize that when the time of trouble comes, it's going to be the same way for us. He, uh, continuing on, the awful moment had come, that moment which was to decide the destiny of the world. There was a moment, at a decision point, where Jesus was going to decide, will I follow the Father's will and save humanity, or will, or will I say, forget all of this? And he didn't, in his own humanity, want to go through. That's why his sacrifice is so amazing. Because if he was just God, okay, he's God. But in his humanity, he did not want to go through with the sacrifice. The awful moment had come, that moment which was to decide the destiny of the world. The fate of humanity trembled in the balance. You realize, each one of us sitting here this evening, our fate rested on the decision that Jesus made in the Garden of Gethsemane. Christ might even now refuse to drink the cup apportioned to guilty man. It was not yet too late. He might wipe the bloody sweat from his brow and leave man to perish in his iniquity. He might say, let the transgressor receive the penalty of sin and I will go back to my father. Will the Son of God drink the bitter cup of humiliation and agony? Will the innocent suffer the consequences of the curse of sin to save the guilty? The words fall tremblingly from the pale lips of Jesus. O oh, my Father, if this cup may not pass from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. Now notice this. Three times has he uttered that prayer. Three times has humanity shrunk from the last crowning sacrifice. But now... 
Now listen carefully. If you haven't been listening to anything else, this is the point in the message to listen. But now the history of the human race comes up before the world's Redeemer. He sees that the transgressors of the law, if left to themselves, must perish. He sees the helplessness of man. He sees the power of sin. The woes and lamentations of a doomed world rise before him. He beholds its impending fate, and his decision is made. He will save man at any cost to himself. What a Savior! He will save us at any cost to himself. If it means that this is the end of his existence eternally, he knows at least that humanity can receive salvation and spend eternity with his loving Father, and he's willing to make that sacrifice. What love? What sacrifice? The ultimate sacrifice of Jesus. As he came to that moment, he made that decision in his humanity, as God as well, to save lost humanity. He saw presented before him our weakness, our sinfulness, our utter helplessness. And he said, you know what? I love you so much that I will go through this sacrifice. And I'll I'll have to tell you, Every time I read this section when I'm just in the privacy of my own room, I can't get through that section without weeping. Because when we talk about Jesus making that decision, yes, he made it for all of the world, but he made it for me. He made it for you. You were the one, I was the one, with our individual choices to sin that put Jesus on the cross. And because he loves us as if we were the only one in all the world, he chose to make that sacrifice. Listen, for Jesus to be a real and living Savior to you, you see him as your Savior as if you were the whole world with all of the sin in the whole world. And you realize that he is making that sacrifice just for you and you alone. Continuing, he accepts his baptism of blood that through him perishing millions may gain everlasting life. Praise the Lord that through Jesus Christ we may have everlasting life. He has left the courts of heaven where all is purity, happiness, and glory to save the one lost sheep, the one world that has fallen by transgression, and he will not turn from his mission. He will become the propitiation of a race that has willed to sin. His prayer now breathes only submission. If this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. And then to finish up, we go to to Calvary. I mean, if we're going to talk about the sacrifice, we at least need to talk about what happened on Calvary. Jesus comes. after, After Gethsemane, he goes through the mock trial, which was a complete scam and a farce with the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas and then Pilate and Herod and back to Pilate. And finally, he's condemned to die, and he goes to Calvary and wicked sinful human beings drive nails through the hands that have always been here to bless others and through the feet that walked the the paths of this earth to bring good tidings and to bring healing and as Jesus is hanging on the cross Jesus starts to feel again that separation from the father This is Desire of Ages, page 753. Jesus, and this is Jesus hanging on the cross. Satan, with his fierce temptations, wrung the heart of Jesus. The Savior could not see through the portals of the tomb. Hope did not present to him his coming forth from the grave a conqueror or tell him of the Father's acceptance of the sacrifice. That's what makes Jesus' sacrifice so amazing. As he's on the cross, humanly speaking, he cannot see past the tomb. All he sees is death and separation, and he can only rely on faith that he will get through this experience. And he still made the choice to go through with it. 
He feared that sin was so offensive to God that their separation was to be eternal. Christ felt the anguish which the sinner will feel when mercy shall no longer plead for the guilty race. It was the sense of sin bringing the Father's wrath upon him as man's substitute that made the cup he drank so bitter and broke the heart of the Son of God. And finally... Desire of Ages, page 756. Jesus has been enclosed with darkness. And he's even cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then we read, suddenly the gloom lifted from the cross. And in clear, trumpet-like tones that seemed to resound throughout creation, Jesus cried, it is finished. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. A light encircled the cross and the face of the Savior shone with a glory like the sun. He then bowed his head upon his breast and died. Jesus died for us. Amid the awful darkness, apparently forsaken of God, Christ had drained the last dregs in the cup of human woe. In those dreadful hours, he had relied upon the evidence of his Father's acceptance heretofore given him. And this is a key point. Jesus had felt the Father's acceptance throughout his life, but as he entered into Gethsemane and as he was dying on Calvary, that sense of acceptance was removed from him. And so he relied on faith. He relied on his memory of the goodness, the mercy, and the love of his Father to to say by faith, even though I don't feel the acceptance of my Father, even though I don't feel the love of the Father right now, I know that he loves me and I know that he accepts me. And that's an example to each one of us because there are going to be times in our life when the trials of life come, when the crosses of our life come, we are going to be saying and wondering, if God loved me, why is he allowing me to go through such an experience? But just as the Father was right next to the Son, even though Jesus couldn't feel him on the cross, in those moments of trial, that is when God is nearest to us. And he is saying, reach up with your hand of faith and hold on to me and trust in me. I will get you through these trials just as the Father got Jesus through the cross. Continuing, Jesus was accepted with the character of his Father. He understood his justice, his mercy, and his great love. By faith, he rested in him whom it had ever been his joy to obey. And as in submission, he committed himself to God. The sense of the loss of his Father's favor was withdrawn. By faith, Christ was victor. The sense that his father was not with him, that sense was withdrawn, and he could rest knowing that his sacrifice was sufficient. Aren't you thankful that Jesus decided to go through that sacrifice? Are you thankful that the way of salvation has been made possible for each one of us? You know, Jesus, he didn't die on the cross to waste his blood. Jesus didn't die so that we could spurn his death. He gives us that choice. And unfortunately, so often, many in this world choose to spurn his great sacrifice. But you know, Jesus died because he loved you so much so that you would accept his sacrifice. Listen, when you see Jesus hanging on the cross in your mind's eye, you see your Savior lifted up before the world, hanging on the cross. And as Ellen White says, hanging on the cross, Christ was the gospel. How can you look into his piercing eyes of love and say, Jesus, thanks for dying, but I'm not going to give my heart to you. Jesus, thanks for dying for me, but don't ask me to be a living sacrifice. I'd rather not be transformed by the renewing of of my mind. I'd like to live the good life here on this earth, and then you can just see fit to save me anyway. How could we say that to a loving God 
who came face to face with eternal death and he saw our weakness, he saw our sinfulness, and he said, because I love you, and don't think about the rest of the world, think of yourself, because I love you, I will make the decision to go through with the sacrifice. And when you see Jesus in that way, making a decision to die for you out of love for you, that should produce within your heart a response of love that says, Jesus, because you love me so much, through your grace and your power, I give everything in my heart to you. That's why Galatians 2 verse 20 says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When we see that Jesus loved me, he gave himself for me, I choose to be crucified with him. And listen, if I'm going to be crucified with Christ, my crucifixion should be like his crucifixion. There will be surrender. Now it won't be, and in reality, seriously, whose crucifixion is going to be what Jesus went through? But it's going to test us. It's going to bring us to a point of decision to say, will we choose to follow God or will we not follow him? Are we going to take the easy, smooth path or take the way that God has set before us? And when we, talk, when we come back to this topic again on Sabbath, which you're going to want to be here for church, the, the, the title of the sermon is the 1888 message on the cross of Christ. We're going to see that the cross of Christ... Yes, it brings us forgiveness of sin. It makes that available. Yes, it brings us salvation. But the cross of Christ has paved the way for, the, for Jesus to develop a group of people throughout history after the cross and especially just before he comes who will be a demonstration of his character to the world. And that's what we're going to talk about on Sabbath. You know, as you've listened to this message tonight, We've heard the cross of Christ before, but I pray that it doesn't ever become a nonchalant topic. Oh, yes, Jesus died for me. He died for my sins. No, this is everything to us. It's what, it, what, it's what gives us a daily experience of life in Christ. And as you've heard this message tonight, as you've seen what Jesus went through as he died on the cross, you're saying, you know what, I need to recommit my life to following Jesus. If he could be crucified for me, I want to be a living sacrifice for him. And this is not an appeal necessarily for everyone, but this is an appeal to a person or persons who are here tonight saying, I want to come forward. I'm going to come down to the front and I am going to, de to declare that I may have been falling away from the Lord. I haven't been a living sacrifice the way the Lord would want me to, me to be. But as I see Jesus hanging on the cross as the gospel for me, I want to come back to him. I want to give my heart to him again. I want to live my life in such a way that will be pleasing to him. And if that is your desire, I would invite you to come down to the front for a special prayer of consecration. A moment to say, I want to give my life fully and completely to Jesus from this day forward. Praise the Lord. Aren't we thankful for what Jesus has done for us? Where would we be without the cross of Christ? And I would encourage each one of you, go back to the Desire of Ages, read those chapters, read Gethsemane, read Calvary, read the agony that Jesus went through, yet the love that he demonstrated for us to make his decision to die for us. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, you see all those who have come forward. Lord, we are thankful for this week of devotion, this week of revival that is focusing on being living sacrifices. But Lord, we realize that we couldn't be a living sacrifice if you hadn't been a sacrifice for us on Calvary. And we thank you so much that you have made and consecrated a way for us that through your grace and through your power, we can give our hearts and our lives to you, that we can become living sacrifices for you. 
holy, acceptable to God, that we can be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we can be crucified with you. And although there may be times when that crucifixion may seem uncomfortable and painful, we can rest in assurance knowing that the path that you have laid before us is the best one. And so, Lord, I pray for each person here tonight who has made this decision, for all who are listening, that we would day by day Surrender our lives to you, motivated by your love, shown to us from the light of Calvary. Thank you for all that you've done for us. And be with us throughout the rest of this week of prayer, throughout the rest of our lives. And we pray that your coming would be soon and that we would be demonstrations of Christ and him crucified in our lives. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. May God bless you. Now, tomorrow night... We're going to continue through the chronology of history after the cross. We are going to talk about the sacrificial faith of the reformers and how they are examples to us who will be living at the end of the world to face a world that is opposed to the law of God. So I look forward to seeing you tomorrow. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.